If you have your Bible this morning, please turn in it to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11. And I'm going to ask you to do something complicated. If you have a smartphone and you're using it, you're not going to be able to do this. Also turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, and put your finger there. The Bible does this really fascinating thing. It often describes people as trees. This is the case in both Isaiah 11 and Matthew 3, lots of other places too. One of the central places it does this is Psalm 1. Listen to these, the first few verses of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now this image in Psalm 1 is picked up in our gospel reading from Matthew 3 that we just listened to. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, speaks to the people as if they too are trees. If you have your finger there in Matthew 3, look at verse 8 and listen to it again. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to yourself to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What John is saying here is that God can raise up a tree from a stone. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And later, John the Baptist also speaks of the chaff that was mentioned in Psalm 1. He's drawing on this image. Now, another passage with this tree imagery is John chapter 15. But here, the image is even more developed. Here, there's only one tree or vine, as Jesus speaks of himself. But there are many branches. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This is a rich metaphor in scripture. The description of people as vines or trees. It's one of those places where the creation bears witness to God and to God's design for humanity. People like vines or trees are to grow up by developing a strong root system. They're to bear fruit so that when they die, you see, even the most beautiful and strong trees do die. But then their fruit returns, they return to the earth and their legacy, their fruit, if you will, lives on. But there's also a problem with this image throughout Scripture. Scripture consistently testifies that humanity on its own bears bad fruit. Our passages in Isaiah and in Matthew are both instances of this. So in Isaiah chapter 10, just before today's reading, 
God determined to destroy a whole forest of rotten trees. The forest was Israel, God's people who had become wicked. They were created as a people to bear fruit for God and for the world by being a nation of justice, mercy, and righteousness. Instead, they had perverted justice and abandoned mercy. In fact, they instituted injustice in the fabric of their nation. Here's what we hear in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Back to the tree image, Isaiah later tells them, because of this, the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 18. Then the Lord of God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. Lop the bows. Is that not a powerful visual? The situation is nearly identical in the case of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 3. They were to bear fruit for God, but they have become so prideful in their own religion that God's love and mercy have been entirely squeezed out. And it's as if their good fruit has become so bitter that it's inedible. If they don't repent, they'll be cut down. Now, this is not only the testimony of Scripture, this claim that humanity often bears bad fruit. It's also the testimony of history. And let's be honest, it's also our own personal testimonies. Left to ourselves, we bear rotten fruit. One Christian writer famously said that the only Christian doctrine that can be fully proven is that of original sin. All of us, despite being lovingly created by God, still bearing His image, we still bear proof of sin's persistent reality in the world. None of this is to say that we can't do some good things. But born out of our own self-made religions, our goodness becomes like bitter fruit that cannot be eaten. It's spoiled by a lurking pride. Our self-produced fruits come more often in the form of things like selfishness, fear, resentment. This Advent, as we are looking toward the arrival of Christ in Christmas and the hope of His second coming, we cannot merely hope to be soothed and comforted by this season. If we are unwilling to equally reflect on our own brokenness, our own contribution to the world's darkness, our continual need for God, it will be a short-lived soothing and a short-lived comfort this season. To reach the heights of Christmas joy and hope, we must be willing to take a good look at the kind of fruit we're bearing, especially the bad fruit. And we must be willing to let God do the pruning that he desires to do so that we can bear good fruit, better fruit. So with the, the few minutes I have here, I want us to look closely at Isaiah 11 through this question. 
What does God do to change the kind of fruit we produce? What does God do to change the kind of fruit that we produce? And here's the answer we find in this passage. God resurrects a dead stump. God resurrects a dead stump. If you have your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 11, look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, I want you also to look at verse 10. This is the end of our passage. So verses 1 and 10 frame, as I'll explain it in a minute, a poem. Now, here's verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. These two verses about the stump and the root of Jesse frame the rest of the passage. Now, Jesse was the father of David, and David was the representative leader of God's people. He was the king to whom all kings compare. He was a mighty warrior, but he also cared for the weak and the vulnerable. When David ruled, you didn't dread reading the news every morning. I thought about that, and then I thought, at least until David did that thing he shouldn't have done. But David's family, Jesse's family, was supposed to produce this unending line of righteous leaders for God's people. You were supposed to be able to count on the family of Jesse. When everything else is going wrong in the world, you can count on that family. They will raise up a ruler who will help us. But even that line had become rotten. They took on David's worst character traits and they even added to them. By the time of Isaiah, the line only produced corrupt, wicked leaders. Israel was in a time of political chaos, moral, and cultural decay. This line of Jesse, once a fruitful tree, a place of hope, was a dead stump. But in this prophecy, God assures Israel the stump is going to come alive again. A new shoot will grow out of the dead stump. This shoot will become a strong king, strong through the power of the Spirit. He will rule in righteousness again, in justice and in mercy. Finally, there will be a man, like the one described in Psalm 1, who refuses to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. His delight will be in the law of the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit. Now here's something really interesting and really important. Prophets in the Bible are often poets. In case you're not listening to something they're saying. Poets tell you something not only with the words they use, but with the way they use the words. The design of the words. Now, uh, this should tell us something important about the, the, the value of poets and artists in our own day. Sometimes God needs to speak in a roundabout way. If you're not hearing the words, you need to see the structure of the words. The, you, they need to paint a picture for us so that we can hear it in a different way. Now these verses are written poetically. Verses 1 through 4 are the first half of the poem. They tell us about this coming king and the way he rules humanity. This is what verses 1 through 4 are about. 
the way this coming king rules humanity. Verses 6 through 10 are the second half of the poem. They are about the way this king rules the creation. The way he rules the creation. Verse 5 is the center of the poem. It speaks to this king being clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. Righteousness and faithfulness are like the belt that holds his entire wardrobe together. This king ends the reign of oppressors and tyrants forever. He is beautiful and radiant. He is the king by whom all other leaders are to be judged. Just a a moment to apply this to us. All our lives are going to be ruled by someone. The earth and our lives must be ruled. Even if we attempt to rule ourselves, we, we will have some king over us. And we ourselves can be cruel rulers, even to ourselves. Don't you want to be ruled by one who is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness? Who decides with equity and with love? This prophecy is about the coming of Christ the King. How God resurrects the dead stump of humanity and becomes the world's true King. Again, the first half of the poem is about how the King rules humanity. And the second half is about what happens in the creation when this king rules. So listen to verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now what these verses are doing is they're drawing from the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The animals are created first, and man is created last to oversee the animals. This king is a second and true Adam, and he enables even children to tame the wild animals. Did you hear that? A little child shall lead them. Now look to it, verse 8. Here's verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. What's the significance of this? This young child in Isaiah 11 is a new Adam, and he has tamed the wildest beast of all, the serpent. No longer does the serpent have to be feared. Because the new Adam has tamed him. And how did he tame him? He tamed him by crushing his head. By suffering. By absorbing sin and death. But rising to defeat it. By verse 10, the poem has escalated to the final day of creation. The day of rest. Of him the nation shall inquire, we're told, and his resting place shall be glorious. This new king, Christ Jesus, introduces a new kingdom to the world, a kingdom that is free from the weariness and sadness of evil. He introduces a a day on which 
There's no stain of sin and evil, and the darkness no longer shines. There's no longer a shadow over the world. And something that should be clear from this vision, when we hold both sections of the poem together, the first half and the second half, his rule over humanity, but then also his rule over creation. Something that should be clear is that Jesus was not intended as a king who brings merely a private spiritual kingdom in the clouds to create only a place of escape where we can go when we die. No, he comes to decide with equity for the meek. He comes to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He turns the world upside down in order to make it right. So with the two halves of this poem, what we're seeing is that the distortion of human relationships is at the root of all the distortions within our creation. I'm going to say that again. The distortion within human relationships is at the root of the distortions within the creation. Christ came to set all things right, to reorder humanity, to make us fruitful again, so that the distortions within the creation begin to disappear. This is why the first half of this poem is how he rules us, and then the second half can be about the way that the creation becomes healed. Because when Christ justifies us and makes us right with him and with one another, we can go out into the world and serve the world in love, and the entire creation begins to be redeemed. How does God change the fruit that we produce? He resurrects a dead stump. Without God, all of us are stumps. But in Christ the King, He, the fruitful tree, God raises us up and joins us to Himself. This is why Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Because we become joined to the tree of Jesse by the Spirit, and we are enabled to bear good fruit. And it's not that the good works that we begin to do earnest salvation in some way. We are redeemed by God's love and His grace, but good works, good fruit, always follows closely behind God's salvation. Those who are loved by God should become fruitful branches of His love. Now, Christmas is coming quickly. The celebration of this king's first arrival in the world. The promise of his second arrival. And in the current time, we are this king's ambassadors. Sent into our little corners of the world to bear the news of our true and lasting king. To proclaim and embody his justice, his mercy, and his righteousness. And to care for his creation in our small but nonetheless important areas of responsibility. I do hope that all of us find ways of enjoying this season, of its sweetness. I hope that you, no matter how low and dark your life may seem, are surprised by God and by the rich gifts of His love. But the lead up to Christmas cannot be simply a serenely happy time. There is still too much darkness in us and in the world around. 
So we must first look at that darkness in us and in the world. We must continually bring these before God and trust that the child, the the new Adam who has crushed the serpent's head, he has brought life to the dead stump of our lives. And the darkness will not outlast the brightness of his love and of his life. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.